Welcome to The Scope with Dr. K, where together we can reimagine GI care. Welcome to The Scope with Dr. K. I'm Dr. Kaczynski. We're going to open the show today as we always do by stating that the goal of this series is to present you with a broad scope of value-based care issues, mainly involving the field of gastroenterology, but also outside of GI as well. We continue this month with a representative from the provider side, but one that is a consultant to providers rather than a provider himself. Our guest today is Daniel J. Marino, managing partner at Lumina Health Partners. Lumina Health Partners is an industry leader in helping medical groups, hospitals, and health systems realize measurable strategic, financial, and operational goals. Along with advising these provider organizations about their operations and governance matters, Lumina helps them drive cultural change by actively engaging physicians with their exclusive lead to support model. In his role as managing partner at Lumina, Daniel is focused on helping healthcare organizations transform, building strategies that help them align their organizational objectives within the evolving value-based care marketplace. I should note that Daniel also has a podcast on this network entitled Value-Based Care Insights, Successful Strategies for Healthcare Organizations. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thanks, Larry. Very happy to be here. Well, I'm honored to have you on. You and I had had met a couple of months ago, and I immediately uh, thought upon our first meeting that you would be a wonderful guest. Dan, expand on what I just said to the listeners about Lumina Health Partners. What do you do? Yeah, happy to. Um, Well, we work with hospitals and physicians all over the country on really their journey into value-based care. As you know, you know, fee-for-service is still the predominant way of reimbursing um, a lot of our providers for services. And as you start to move into value-based care, it's a different type of structure. Everything from the way you get reimbursed to quantifying a lot of the clinical outcomes and really putting in place new care delivery models. So within Lumina, Our team is made up of of not just um, industry administrative executives, but we have a lot of clinical executives that work with physicians and administrative leaders to really help them shift to more of a value-based care component, especially as it relates to the delivery of care and services. So what do you consider a success um, for your clients and what would be an example of one of your biggest successes? Well, I'll tell you, really gathering the information, um, the clinical information, and delivering it to physicians in such a way that it helps them really broaden their understanding of what's occurring with their patients. And and I'll give you an example of this. A number of years ago, I was working with a primary care physician, and we were putting in a program called clinical integration. And really, the aspect of clinical integration is really looking at a a lot of the clinical quality outcomes of the care that's being delivered to patients. And what we started to do was create a lot of information for them that really almost led them to a new perspective on the care that was being delivered. And it was interesting because the physician that we were working with at first didn't really understand what clinical integration was and was really concerned with the type of reporting we were going to give to him. And then after a while, he started to look at this report and it really started to elevate the care that he was delivering. Plus, it provided a bit of a 
confirmation that he was actually doing a good job in that care delivery. And he made one comment to me, and I'll never forget this. He said, Dan, I always thought I was a good physician, but it wasn't until I actually saw the clinical outcomes, the performance reports, that it actually confirmed that I was doing a good job for my patients. So that's a lot of the work that we end up doing for a lot of our clients. Well, you know, we are data-driven as physicians, and so often we work in a absence of data. When somebody can provide that to us, it, it really helps provide support that we're doing the right thing. I can understand what that doctor was saying. So what kind of challenges uh, do you run into? What are your biggest challenges in obtaining the successes? Well, a lot of it is helping providers think about that shift into value-based care and really away from fee-for-service. And I'm a huge proponent of form follows function, and you have to have the right incentives. Right now in healthcare, we are still predominantly reimbursed on fee-for-service, right? Patients go to see the physicians, the physicians bill their CPT codes, and we get reimbursed a certain amount for those you know, CPT codes or those services. In value-based care, it's a little bit different. We're asked to do a little bit more. Providers are asked to provide some level of outreach, which you're not always going to get reimbursed for in a fee-for-service structure, but you will if you have a fee-for-value contract. So the biggest challenge is to help physicians with that, that cultural mindset shifts, that cultural mind shift to value-based care, as well as putting in the right components to help them be successful in a value-based care environment and really trust that process. Because as I said, it's an investment that you're not gonna get a return on in a fee-for-service world, but you definitely have got it in a fee-for-value world. You know, I have, a, I have a slide I show in some of my lectures of the San Andreas Fault. And so often as a provider transitioning into value-based care, I feel like I'm standing on top of that fault. And I have one foot planted very securely in the fee-for-service side, and I've got my toe over there on the value-based side, ready to jump. <laughs> but that crack keeps getting wider. And, and somewhere along the line, I'm going to be forced to be on one side or the other. Um, it's, it's a little scary to, and the hospitals deal with this just as much as the providers do. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's still, like I said, you know, when you're getting, when, when a vast majority of your revenue is still tied to fee for service, it's hell hard to make that shift, but it's really necessary because as I've said to administrative leaders and to physicians, that investment we make and that shift that we're seeing as an industry is the right thing to do for our patients. It's the right thing to do for our physicians and it's the right thing to do for our communities. Absolutely, I totally agree with you. So you consult all over the country. Give the listeners an idea of where the transition to value-based care is from a high level. We, you don't have to get into specifics, but from a high level, where are we? How, how much weight do we have on that fee-for-service foot and how much weight do we have on our value-based care foot and how fast that, is it moving? That's a good question. And it really, I think to your point is really market and geographic specific, you know, areas of California, you know, for the longest time have been 
a little bit more focused on these, you know, full risk models where providers were are, are really almost 100% held accountable to the care that's being delivered, and they've had to track outcomes, they've had to watch their their cost of care more so than in other areas of the country. We're starting to see that shift occur from the west to the east, certain areas on the east coast, Geisinger and, and some of the other large health systems have also gotten, gotten involved in these full rest contracts that are really value-based care driven. Probably in the Midwest, we're a little slower, um, although we've, we've made some real strong progress within probably the last year, year and a half, especially since COVID has, has occurred. But you know, I think as we start to see the shift occurring, we're going to see the West Coast and the East Coast come together, especially as some of the provider or the payers such as United Healthcare and, and Aetna are starting to put in these national strategies of value-based contracting. Revolutionary change is painful and can be, can be disastrous at times where incremental change uh, takes longer but is safer and when I look at California and I look at some of the carnage that's occurred over the years in uh, practices, entities that took full risk, uh, this was revolutionary change for many of them. And how prepared do you think most organizations are to take full risk? Um, I would say that they're not very prepared at all. Um, when we work with organizations, there is a progression you need to move through as an organization to prepare yourself for risk. And it really starts with, again, having your providers think differently about the care that's being delivered. It's that paradigm shift that has to start with understanding the data, how to incorporate different care models, and how to interact with the patients differently. And then as you move through that journey, through that progression to risk, there's aspects of understanding, say, the risk attribution of your population, um, understanding the types of programs that have to be put in place. And really, it comes down to understanding who you're managing, how you can be successful, and having very focused, directed care. If organizations could begin to put those things in place, then they're successful. But to your point, Larry, it takes time. It, this does not happen overnight. And they don't have the infrastructure. So when you go into a large provider entity and they engage you to assist them, what kind of things do you look at in the practice uh, for change? Where do you start? You said culture. I, I get that. But culture a lot of times is driven by what they're doing. Um, so what kind of changes do you try to get them to make? Well, the first thing that we look at is what their provider network um, looks like within supporting the hospital and, and with the community. Any successful organization that has moved into risk or that has been successful into, in value-based contracting um, or value-based care, there's a common denominator. And that common denominator is really around having these initiatives be physician-led and physician-driven. So we look at what the provider network looks like. We look at who's actually leading the charge? Is there a passionate physician that is really driving this? Uh, sort of that, that beacon in the night, if you will, with their other providers. 
Um, if there's not, then right there, that's a recommendation for change. If there is, then we begin to look at how integrated they are. Are they acting as silos in their practices or are they actually truly becoming clinically integrated where they're sharing information, sharing the patient and really starting to manage the patient longitudinally? Those aspects become the foundation of really value-based care. And then you begin to layer on other areas, the analytics, care management programs, and you can then start to begin to negotiate different types of contractual arrangements that helps provides incentives and really funds that structure as you begin to develop it for the, the network as a whole. So it's almost like a field of dreams analogy. If you build it, they will come. So you, you build that value-based infrastructure within the provider side, and then you negotiate the contracts. Well, not necessarily. So the first thing that you have to do is you have to have a network, but all of the capabilities don't have to be built out. You can start to create some contractual arrangements that help to fund the build of the infrastructure. So I'll give you an example. You can set, say, a basic pay for performance type of a contract with the network that as they start to report, they'll get some performance dollars that will go towards, say, developing stronger analytics or developing stronger care management programs. So as you begin to build your infrastructure, the levels of contracting could increase, which again provides additional funding and support. I see. I get it. Um, so often we we're dealing with policy issues that that arise, and I, I know you've had you've had some podcasts. I listened to one of your podcasts on uh, that was talking about policy changes. Um, if you had your wish list, um, knowing what you know. What type of policy changes do you think could be instituted that would make this move more quickly? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think I'm going to answer that by saying where I think my largest frustration has been um, as we moved into value-based care. We've been talking about value-based care and clinical integration and population health for, gosh, I've been doing it for probably 12, 15 years. And the shift has occurred, but the shift has occurred very slowly. And I believe the reason for that is because the payers haven't really adopted the change in reimbursement that really has to occur to align all the right incentives. So if I had a magic wand and I was able to say, okay, what type of policy would we want to put in place? I think the policy really needs to come down to changing the financial incentives and the reimbursement that allows providers to get reimbursed more around the care and, and the, 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 the care that they're delivering and the quantification of a lot of those outcomes, as opposed to just the number of patients that they're seeing. I'm not necessarily in favor of a single payer system. I am in favor of changing the level of reimbursement and the incentives that are associated with it. Payment models. Let's talk a little bit about you. You bring up payment models. You know, Sonar, Project Sonar was the first approved physician focused payment model uh, by CMS back in April of 2017. And the major reason this probably hasn't been implemented by the federal government is that 
we really couldn't develop a payment model that would traverse both the specialty and the primary care space. To me, that's a huge challenge. We, we can, we can incentivize, primary, incentivize primary care doctors, but we still pay our, our specialists a discounted fee for service. Uh, what do you have a payment model concept that can be a oh, solution yeah. for that? Yeah, we've, um, we've done a lot of work um, working with providers, with the employers, um, and in some cases, even the specialists, I'm coming up with different types of, of payment models that really provide the incentives to the specialists. And as you've said, it's, it's easier to provide that level of reimbursement to the primaries because the way that they manage the care and direct the care to the patients are different than how a specialist does it. So really it comes down to some level of an episode-based program and a pricing model that again, allows the provider to, the specialist to deliver the right level of care to the patient while being able to influence that care even after the surgery has, has occurred. Those types of episode-based models that really help to manage the cost, influence the quality outcomes are extremely attractive to employers. So a lot of what we've been doing is creating a lot of these episode-based pricing models and taking them directly to the employers. And it's been extremely well-received. So in your episode models, you have both PCP and specialty components. Yes, we do. And it goes across the entire continuum of the episode. So it may occur 30 days prior where a patient actually may need to have, say, a pre-surgical evaluation that's done. And depending upon different comorbidities they may have, working directly with the specialist or the surgeon, if you will, it's primarily based on the surgical episode, right? Because that's how you're structuring this. But you have to have an influence of primary care not just during the surgery, but post-surgery to ensure that a lot of the chronic diseases and those activities are actually aligned and coordinated. A lot of times when you look at where the cost drivers are, the cost drivers aren't necessarily how we're managing the surgical activity, but it's all those other influences that drive a lot of cost components to it that could, per, could potentially derail the outcomes for the, for the patient. That's where a lot of the cost pieces come into play. So we try to manage that incorporating a lot of the different specialties in there and creating a model of coordination and continuity. Not a simple task, but uh, it's, it's encouraging to know that there's somebody out there actually trying to put this together. I'm gonna break here for a second. If you have just tuned in, you're listening to The Scope with Dr. K. Our guest today is Daniel J. Marino, managing partner of Lumina Health Partners. What I'd like to do at this point, Dan, is shift a little bit to accountable care organizations. You have shared with me in the past your description of the various levels of ACOs around the country. I found it fascinating when you presented it. And I'd, I'd love to have you explain this to the listeners. Yeah, you know, the traditional accountable care organization is primary care based. And if, if you think about what the purposes of the ACO is, it's really to manage a set number of, of patients or what we would really call the attributed lives. 
So having primary care, the attribution model is really based off of having them attributed to primary care physicians, and that becomes really important. But as I said, um, you know, when you start to look at the economics of what drives the cost to care, it's managing of the chronic diseases, which are certainly primary care based, but then there's also elements that would incorporate the specialists, especially for those patients that have complex care or complex conditions. So having a layer of the specialists included in there and having the right incentives become really important to really driving down the overall cost of care. And one other thing that I would mention, Larry, is when we think about this, one of the big drivers of cost is utilization, right? So we want to create efficiencies. We want to create coordination. We want to create alignment. And all of that occurs between the primary care physician and the specialist. So what you described earlier for a payment model for a procedure-based episode, how does that correlate with a chronic disease episode? So when you look at an ACO, the structure may be a little bit different um, and how you contract and set up your reimbursement model will be a little bit different. Typically what ACOs contract with a payer based on a set number of, of, of a population, say it's 5,000, you're gonna be looking at a cost to care figure and you know a, a per member per month or per member per year. And let's say it's per member per year, it could be $12,000 per member per year. So if, you, if the network, which is made up of primary care physicians and the specialists, do a good job in managing that cost of care and could actually show that they're driving down the cost of care. They're gonna, sh they're gonna receive some level of incentive and they're gonna, they're gonna share in that, that financial opportunity that occurs either directly with the payer or the employer, um, but nonetheless, they're gonna have dollars to be able to provide that level of incentives to you know, the specialists and to the primary care physicians. As you start to look at the population, what the ACO has to identify are what are the key drivers of cost. If you can begin to identify that, and that's where the analytic comes into place. If you can begin to identify that, you can start to put programs in place. You can influence where patients are going. You can begin to manage and provide insight to the other providers, all of which are gonna provide some great outcomes for your network. And when you come to dividing the savings. So let's say they do beat, beat the 12,000 per patient and they have some value-based revenue to distribute. What kind of models do you see in the chronic disease space for distributing that revenue between primaries and specialists? Well, it's, it's again, you want to look at what the motivating factors are. So primary care is pretty easy because you have the attribution model, um, uh, the attributed patients that are given, you know, that are aligned with the primary care physician. And you can begin to look at what the cost structure is. For specialists, we look at it a little bit different. We typically focus, focus it on unique encounters. Um, so you may have a, for instance, if you're an endocrinologist, um, you may have a patient going to see you for diabetic management, and you can start to carve out what the attributed cost would be just for that. And then you would set up the incentive distribution model based on what we would call unique encounters. And some of the models get a little bit intricate, 
But the biggest thing to remember in any of these incentive models is you want to provide the, the you want to incentivize the right behaviors, right? We want to make sure we're all aligning to what the common goal is going to be, both for the patient, for the network, and for the for the community that we're serving. This is fascinating. You've you've really taken it down to a level of granularity that I, I don't think most of us have conceived. Um, one of the things you shared with me in one of our meetings was the various types of ACOs, the levels of risk in ACOs. And I think you had three categories, if I remember correctly. Can you share that with the listeners? Yeah, it, you know, the it, it really comes down to how you set up your network. And this is something we work with healthcare organizations all over the country. Um, it's definitely not a one size fits all. So we typically will set up what we would call like a tier one direct contracting network, which, you know, maybe the employed group are going to be those physicians. And then, you know, the, the financial incentives and even the contracting component will be slightly different compared to what we would call then the second tier or a clinical service participation. This has been extremely attractive to specialists. And this is some of what we were talking about with SonarMD, Larry, where you can actually participate as a specialist in multiple different ACOs. So it provides a nice revenue stream for you. But what it also does is ensuring that you're supporting the network as a whole. And then the third tier is, is sort of that alignment with the payer network or even a broader base network could be another ACO. But what it allows you to do is increase your network adequacy, excuse me. And it also allows you then to make sure that your network keeps the patients internal to what is important around managing the patients, utilization, clinical outcomes, programs, data sharing, all of those things. One more ACO question. The difference between the hospital system-owned ACO versus the provider-owned ACO. Any specific nuances you'd like to share on those two ownership models? Yeah, I, you know, I think, again, it comes down to, you know, what's the problem that we're trying to solve for and what is the, the economic model? I really believe that in order for us to really improve the cost of care and deliver the best outcome to the patients, those ACO models have to come together, right? Because, you know, if you look at what's a big cost driver, acute care services drive a large portion of the cost. Hospitals can't be successful without physicians. And the same with physicians. Physicians can't be successful without the hospital. So that collaboration has to occur. Now, you can set up ACOs um, that are more hospital-focused or hospital-based versus those that are more provider-based. And you'll do okay to a certain extent, but when you move into full risk, as we've talked about before, the more integrated you are between those ACOs, the more you create a robust network, the better opportunity you have to manage those patients across the network and really, you really begin to drive a lot of the outcomes. Well, I think you've been very clear here, Dan, that we have to work together. We have to think as large integrated entities. We have to take and be willing to accept joint risk and partner with each other to share the responsibilities for that risk. I appreciate you being on today. You can learn more about the show on the programs page on healthcarenowradio.com. 
and lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at HC Now Radio. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at SonarMD. We're bringing patients, providers, and payers together to reimagine GI care. Until next time, I'm Dr. K. Stay well. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. K. Tune in with me next time to reimagine the scope of GI care. If we build it, they will join.